Welcome to NGA Notable Lectures, a podcast offering a deeper understanding of all things artistic. The 2019 Summer Sunday Lecture Series, celebrating the old master collections of the National Gallery of Art, takes a closer look at the many treasures housed in the gallery's permanent collection. Works by Italian, French, Dutch, and American artists are featured in this visual tour. New insights and surprising discoveries await, featuring gallery favorites and recently acquired works. In this seventh lecture in the series, presented on August 18th, David Gariff, senior lecturer, discusses the gallery's collection of Italian paintings, considered the most important in the United States and among the finest and most comprehensive in the world. The collection contains works by some of the greatest Italian painters in art history, including Duccio, Giotto, Fra Angelico, Fra Filippo Lippi, Botticelli, Piero di Cosimo, Raphael, Giovanni Bellini, Giorgione, Titian, Correggio, and Bernardino Luini. All the important regional schools are represented, including Florence, Siena, Venice, and the Lombard tradition in the north. Most important, the National Gallery of Art is home to the only painting by Leonardo da Vinci in the Western Hemisphere, his portrait of Ginevra de Benci. In this lecture, Gareth explores the history of central Italian painting from 1300 to 1520, seen through the masterpieces in the gallery's permanent collection. Welcome uh, to the National Gallery. Uh, my name is David Gareth. I'm a senior lecturer here. And uh, this is a continuation of our summer lecture series. Uh, this summer, we've been focusing on masterpieces in the permanent collection uh, in the West Building, uh, so old masterworks for the most part. And um, you've heard uh, lectures, if you've been coming all summer, on the Dutch collection, the British collection, the American collection, a, le a lecture on Venetian uh, Italian art. And uh, I'm going to talk today about central Italian uh, painting in the collection. And then uh, next week, the 25th, our series will come to its conclusion for the summer, and I'll be lecturing again on uh, French 18th century art. So the, the series ends next, uh, next Sunday. I want to welcome everybody who's also uh, viewing this uh, as a live uh, stream. So uh, my discussion today is on the, the collection of central Italian painting, roughly from 1300 to 1520. 1520 is the death of Raphael. I'm concentrating on central Italy. My colleague Eric Denker has already spoken to you about Venetian Renaissance painting. Uh, the National Gallery of Arts collection of Italian painting is considered the most important in America, and it's among the most uh, comprehensive in the world. The, the, the Italian collection is vast uh, in its size, its scope, its quality. It's particularly rich in works in the location and period that I'm talking about, central Italy in the 15th century. And nearly all of the gallery's earliest Italian paintings belong for the most part to two major collectors, benefactors, and founding benefactors of the museum, uh, either Andrew Mellon uh, or Samuel uh, Cress. So in this talk, in addition to trying to point out to you some of the great uh, Italian paintings that we have, I am going to address uh, especially the collecting taste of Samuel Cress, uh, because that figures very prominently in this discussion. 
So here is a photograph, a portrait of Andrew Mellon on the left from 1933. That's in our Founders Gallery off of the Rotunda in the West Building. And then a portrait of Samuel Cress from 1953, also in our Founders Gallery. The uh, portrait on the left is by Sir Oswald Burley, a British painter. And the, the portrait on the right of, of Mr. Cress is by Leopold Seifert, who's an American painter. So. As I've said, my colleagues, both uh, Eric Denker and Heidi Applegate, have talked to a large extent this summer about Andrew Mellon. He does figure in this talk. Uh, he was, of course, a Pittsburgh industrialist, a financier, U.S. Treasury Secretary, ambassador to the U.K., and, of course, he's the founder of the National Gallery, which he founds in 1937, and his desire was to create a museum for the nation that would rival the great art collections of Europe. And the specific museum he had in mind was the one that he liked to attend when he was in London, and that is the National Gallery of Art in London. Uh, now, as a collector, Mr. Mellon was not a risk taker. He, he wasn't, he had relatively conservative tastes. And in relationship to Italian art, which is what my subject is, he looked for obviously always high quality work, but masterpieces, and he acquired works by both Botticelli and Raphael. He did seek out earlier Italian pictures by equally renowned painters, which we'll look at today, some of those. He thought very much about how one would experience his collection when you came to the gallery. Where would you start? What would you look at? What would the chronology be that you would uh, be exposed to? So in fact, the gallery's very first accession painting from uh, Mr. Mellon is a rare Byzantine Madonna that's in Gallery 1 today. That was something that he owned, and I'll show that to you in a second. He had started acquiring works when he was still in Pittsburgh, but he really began to amb ambitiously acquire works when he arrived in Washington in 1921. The Mellon collection that was given to the gallery was superb. It consisted of 126 paintings and 26 works of sculpture. Now, Mr. Cress, Samuel H. Cress, was the American dime store magnate. He also sought out masterpieces by the great names. Mr. Mellon's taste ran more to Dutch and English art, but Samuel Cress's taste was specifically Italian painting, and he acquired them not haphazardly, but systematically, knowing exactly what he needed to build the collection and how to put it together in an art historical, as well as in terms of his taste. His goal was to build the largest and most comprehensive collection of Italian paintings in private hands. He originally intended to found his own museum, but then he was persuaded to join his holdings with Mr. Mellon's when it was, um, when it became clear that there would be this newly established National Gallery of Art. By 1941, when the gallery opened to the public, uh, Cress's donation consisted of 375 Italian paintings and 18 sculptures. Um, his lifelong devotion to Italian art can be seen in uh, archival photographs that I'm going to intersperse throughout this talk that show his apartment that was located on, at 1025th Avenue across the street from the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Because uh, I think it's important, and I'm, again, I'm trying to combine also 
the way Mr. Kress lived with these pictures as then how we live with them now in a, in a museum, because there are different factors at, at work. Of course, Mr. Kress had a, had a brother, Samuel Kress had a brother, Rush Harrison Kress, who is depicted in this painting on the right, also by Leopold Seifert from 1953. Uh, illness incapacitated Samuel Kress in 1946, and his younger brother is Rush Harrison Kress. He took over the leadership of the family's foundation. His taste was, again, it was specifically Italian, but he expanded the collection beyond the Italian focus, adding works by Albrecht Durer, Matthias Grunewald, El Greco, Rubens, Watteau, and Ang. He also amassed one of the world's greatest collections of Renaissance bronzes. Some 1,300 statuettes, plaquettes, and medals. And these, to the, for the most part, he gave to the, to the National Gallery. When you look at these two portraits by Seifert, you'll notice that he places both of the crests brothers in a Italian Renaissance style armchair, clearly speaking to their particular sort of taste in art. This is the opening dedication, the dedication of the National Gallery on March 17, 1941. On the left, President Roosevelt is speaking, uh, giving the opening remarks. The museum opened to the public the day after this, so this, the dedication was March 17th. 1941, the museum opened to the public the next day. And in this photograph at the left, Samuel Kress is on the dais with, with Paul Mellon. I'll show you a closer view in a second. Andrew Mellon did not live to see the dedication of the gallery. He died in August of 1937. So his son, Paul Mellon, represented him on the dais, and we'll, I'll show you a picture in a, in, a, in a minute. On the right is Andrew Mellon, in his apartment here in D.C., which was at 1785 Massachusetts Avenue Northwest near DuPont Circle, it was called the McCormick Building. He lived on the entire top floor. And this is, uh, over the mantle, is a painting that we now have at the National Gallery of View on a high road by Hobham, of the Dutch painter that's hanging over his fireplace. Mellon's collection, he donated his art collection, which was valued at somewhere around $25 million dollars to the United States government, and then he added another donation of $15 million to build the museum that would house his works. In our uh, archives, we have these letters that are the exchange of letters between Samuel Kress and Franklin Roosevelt regarding the gift of the Kress collection to the National Gallery. The, the letters date July 1st and 7th, 1939. And I thought I would read you some excerpts from this correspondence. On July 1st, 1939, Kress writes to uh, Franklin Roosevelt. He says, My dear Mr. President, recalling the interest which you expressed in art in our country when I called on you several years ago, I am writing to inform you, regretting that I cannot do so personally, that I am arranging to give to the National Gallery of Art in Washington for its official opening my collection of Italian paintings and sculpture, which conclusion I arrived at after various conversations with representatives of the gallery for over a year. This will require the removal of practically all the paintings from my home, making, of course, a great change there, but I feel that any loss in that way will be compensated by the knowledge that my collection of Italian paintings and sculpture, into which I have put much time and great investment, will have found a permanent home. 
So then he puts in that letter as well, and that's sort of the second page here. He says to the president that he's also going to inform the board of trustees of the National Gallery about his desire, and that's what is essentially now starting on page two. I won't read you the whole thing, but he says now to the board, gentlemen, over a period of many years, I have quietly acquired a collection of paintings and sculpture, particularly works of art representative of the Italian school, with the object of someday donating my collection to the public for exhibition and study in our country. Besides bringing from Europe as many as I could, I have made great effort to keep in this country paintings and sculpture that would otherwise very probably have been returned to Europe and have become permanently part of the great European galleries. I have done this in order that my Italian collection might include as many works as possible of the great Italian masters. He goes on and then he says, I have followed with interest the establishment of the National Gallery of Art in Washington and the construction of the great edifice there to house the nation's works of art. And he goes on again, I'm just moving rather quickly here, quote, because of the gallery and the works of art which it will contain will be for the benefit of all the people of the United States and will be accessible to so many citizens of this and other countries visiting our national capital, it seems most suitable that others should contribute to the collection being formed there. And it is my wish, therefore, that the works of art which I have acquired should become part of the National Gallery collection and be exhibited in the gallery building now being erected in Washington. Then he it gets a response from Franklin Roosevelt on July 7th, and the president writes, My dear Mr. Kress, your decision to present to the people of the United States your priceless art collection is in keeping with the broad spirit of the Congress in establishing the National Gallery of Art, primarily as the home of the Mellon Collection. It has been the hope of those who have the welfare of the National Gallery at heart that other private gifts would supplement the treasures included in Mr. Mellon's collection. I am, therefore, most grateful for your letter of July 1st, in which you embody a letter to the Board of Trustees of the National Gallery of Art, setting forth the generous terms of your proposed gift. Not only are the treasures you plan to bestow on the nation incalculable in value and in interest, but in their bestowal, you are giving an example which may well be followed by others of our countrymen who have in their stewardship art treasures, which also happily might find a home in the National Gallery. Of course, as you know, Mr. Mellon did not want the museum to be named the Mellon Museum. He insisted that it be named the National Gallery of Art for just this reason that Roosevelt refers to, because if it were the Mellon Museum, other collectors would, want, would not want their collection in the Mellon Museum. But if it were the National Gallery of Art that belonged to the entire nation, then they would want their collections there. And the first one to bring the collection, their, his personal collection, to the gallery in addition to the Mellon collection was, of course, Mr. Kress. So here is that dedication photograph, and now on the right is a close-up view. To the left is Samuel Kress. In the center is Paul Mellon, and the man to the right is the Chief Justice Charles Evan Hughes at the dedication of the uh, gallery on March 17, 1941. You can actually find this <laughs> on YouTube, and you can actually hear the remarks of the um, individuals. But I'm going to read you just the remarks of Mr. Kress 
at the dedication. He says, Mr. President, Mrs. Roosevelt, Mr. Chief Justice, ladies and gentlemen, I am sure that I voice the unanimous regret that Mr. Andrew Mellon is not here to participate in the fulfillment of his admirable undertaking. Like Mr. Mellon, I also felt the need of a national gallery which would be shared by all the people of our country and contain only the finest works of art, contributed by those who wish to give their greatest treasures to the nation that has done so much for all of us. In forming my collection, I have had in mind to provide for the study and enjoyment of the public as complete a representation as possible of the Italian school of painting and sculpture of quality. I have endeavored to acquire the best examples of the most representative masters of this important school, beginning with the 13th century painters Giotto and Duccio and extending through the great periods in Florence, Siena, Umbria, Venice, and Northern Italy, and ending with the Venetians of the 18th century. I felt that by so concentrating, I would be able to make the greatest contribution for comprehensive study and understanding of that school, which really gave the earliest fundamental inspiration and also maintained superior quality and art throughout the Renaissance period. Among the exhibits in this building are some of man's best works of art from the 13th to the 18th centuries. And the building itself is possibly the very height of man's accomplishment for its purpose. It is a great privilege to give our best to our country. As an older person, I feel this particularly now when we are asking our young men to place their lives at the disposal and service of their government. I love my paintings, having lived surrounded by them for many years. Now the walls of my home are bare of Italian paintings, and I shall miss them. But I am happy in the thought that during my lifetime, my collection intact is settled in my country, in a permanent home within this magnificent modern structure. It is my hope that this contribution will grow in appreciation with the passing years to be enjoyed by all future generations. And so, Mr. President, I turn over my collection to you for the benefit and enjoyment of all the people to be preserved as part of that spiritual heritage, which is our greatest and most treasured possession. Now, he makes reference here on a couple of occasions that he's going to be sad when all these paintings leave his home. Uh, so here is Mr. Cress, and here is the building he lived in. In the middle is a, the actual photograph of the building when it first opened in 1925. The photograph on the right is the way the building looks today. So he bought an apartment at 1020 Fifth Avenue in New York across from the Metropolitan when the building opened in 1925. So the family lived high above Central Park and the artwork, the antique woodwork, the extravagant man mantles, everything was uh, chosen specifically. The duplex of penthouse apartment was 8,000 square feet. It took up the two uh, top floors of the building and it had 17 rooms, five bedrooms, six baths, a grand salon and a solarium, as well as large uh, roof terraces. The apartment, which is at the corner of East 83rd across from the Met, was actually advertised when they were seeking residence as, quote, the house in the sky, unquote. Cress paid in 1925 $150,000 for the space. The building went co-op in 1965 
In 2008, the Crest family decided to put the apartment on the market, and it was marketed at in excess of $50 million. So now I'm going to get, make everybody jealous and envious, um, and we're going to walk through some of the rooms, but I've really chosen often to show you where he placed certain works that we have today in our collection. This was the uh, sitting room in the apartment. Cress installed a, a ceiling from a 17th century Venetian palace, and that sort of shaped the apartment's 20 by 40 foot sunken grand salon. There was a short staircase that you see in this photograph, kind of in the center lower part. That was carved from marble that was quarried in Pietra Santa in Italy, where Michelangelo quarried his marble. There was a 30-foot-long master bedroom that came intact, complete, from an English home designed by uh, Robert Adams in the 18th century. The library, which in fact he later converted into a bedroom, was totally, completely transplanted from an 18th century French building. This is the entry, the entrance hall. These photographs, by the way, date to 1938-39. And if you'll notice the large uh, painting on the far left or in the other photograph kind of in the center, that's Agnolo Gatti's Coronation of the Virgin with Six Angels that today hangs here at the National Gallery. If we go around that space and look at other paintings today, they can be located in Miami at the Low Art Museum, in Atlanta at the High Museum, and in South Carolina at the Columbia Museum of Art. Uh, the same entryway just photographed from a different a point of view on the, on the left, and this is the Venetian sitting room on the right. Well, the main sculpture is by Antonio Rossellino, Rossellino, the Madonna and Child that's today here at the National Gallery. Here's that staircase again, carved from marble from Italy. Here, uh, all those paintings across the wall, uh, for the most part, are here today at the National Gallery. So from the far left across to the right is Anthony Van Dyke's Lady with a Fan. This painting, at the time that Mr. Cress acquired it, was thought to be by Giorgione or, and or Titian, but we know that's not the case today. It's by Cariani, Portrait of a Venetian Gentleman. The next work is a, Tunisian, is a Titian workshop a piece, The Allegory of Love, and then Bartolomeo Veneto, a portrait of a gentleman here. So today these are all here. The complete catalog of the Crest collection runs to nine volumes. The Italian painting volumes are three in number, and here they are, published at, in 1966, 68, and 73. Of course, Samuel Crest created the Crest Foundation, and that led to his um, generous uh, gifts to various museums across the United States. So Mr. Cress had begun to collect Italian Renaissance art in 1920. In 1929, he established the Samuel H. Cress Foundation. The first seminal gifts were the ones to the National Gallery, uh, which begin in 1939. And while most of his collection came here to the National Gallery, Crest then donated European art to 90 institutions in 33 states, making art accessible to areas formerly without such cultural resources. The dissemination of the collection wasn't completed until 1961. Mr. Crest was adamant about the fact that paintings should go to those cities that had his dime stores. 
and that were not major cultural centers. His first, I'm not saying, let me, don't, I'm going to say something now. His first store was in Memphis, which is not to say that Memphis wasn't the major cultural center, but many of his five and dime stores were in much smaller cities, and now they all have paintings uh, from Mr. Kress. So looking at our collection, of Italian painting in the West Building. We start literally with Gallery 1 and circulate around, in my case, I'm going to end over here in 20. Gallery 1 houses the earliest Italian paintings we have. And as I said to you, I'm going to limit the geographical location of this talk to central Italy. So that means Tuscany, Umbria, and the Marques will be my uh, main areas. I'm not going to venture north to Milan or Lombardy. This is Gallery 1, which houses the earliest Italian paintings that we uh, have. And this is where we have this painting on the right, which is a Byzantine 13th century Madonna and Child on a Curved Throne from 1260 to 1280. It's tempera. And this is the first gift of Mr. Mellon. This is the, so we call this sometimes the Mellon Madonna, which was the gallery's first accession painting the earliest painting in Mr. Mellon's collection. It was a, it is a very rare Byzantine uh, Madonna. In gallery one, facing the Byzantine wall, we have these two very significant paintings. These are by the Sienese painter Duccio. Uh, the nativity with the prophets Isaiah and Ezekiel on the left, which is a Mellon picture. And this is a very interesting comparison because the Duccio on the right the calling of the apostles Peter and Andrew is a Cress picture. So in the very first room, we have Mr. Mellon and Mr. Cress speaking to each other with the same work of art because both of these paintings came from a magnificent large altarpiece that's today in Siena, the so-called uh, Maya Sta. So this comparison is particularly poignant, significant, the uh, nativity has the original frame still, the engaged frame that was part of the Maya style. That's not the case with the um, picture at the, at the right. These, both of these pictures came from this. And this is the great Maya style that's in Siena at the uh, Museo dell'Opera uh, del Duomo in Siena. The Maya style was painted between 1308 and 1311. What often happens with altarpieces, especially of this scale, is that they are in style, but then they're out of style. And as, once they fall out of style, they start getting taken apart and what we call dispersed. So when you go through the first galleries of the West Building and see the Italian paintings, many, many are small pictures. And that's not because they were painted intentionally just to be small, but they were part of a much larger uh, altarpiece. So today, this is the front side of the Maya style, which was also painted on the back. 13 panels of the Maya Sta have been dispersed today. Six of them are in the United States, and two of them are at the National Gallery. So the other ones are at Philadelphia, the Philadelphia Museum of Art, Mount Holyoke College in Massachusetts, the Frick Collection in New York, and the Kimball in Fort Worth. Those are just the ones in the United States. So our painting of the Nativity would have been right here in this low part called the predella. Here's the back. What's fascinating and interesting about having, we have many, many predella paintings from dispersed altarpieces, 
And what's interesting about that is that normally when an altarpiece was put into place, the predella is what would have been at eye level. And the predella would have been the scenes that would have been most narrative to, in, to sort of tell a story about the other uh, larger paintings above them. So here's the Duccio still in its uh, original frame. This was purchased by Mr. Mellon on April 26th, 1937. And in fact, it is his last gift to the National Gallery. He died four months later in August of 1937. I was speaking recently to David Allen Brown about this, and he, our curator, and he made the point that how thrilling it is to understand that when you look at this painting with its original engaged frame, this was the painting, this whole Maestad was carried in triumph through the streets of Siena when Duccio finished it, brought from his studio to the uh, cathedral so you, you can almost feel and understand that that picture with that frame was carried through the streets of Siena in 1311. In this talk, I can't go into a lot of analytic detail about style and all the things that these paintings require. I've spoken extensively about these paintings in various gallery talks and also uh, lectures. The Byzantine tradition, though, is relevant to the Duccio, and this is a Byzantine icon on the right from Athens that speaks to what Duccio was aware of in Siena. The Byzantine tradition lingered in Siena longer than it did in Florence, and this idea of the reclining virgin after giving birth is a distinctly Byzantine motif. If you want to learn more about this painting, come to my Christmas story talk. Uh, when I go into extensive uh, analysis. When you look at a predella, you have to understand that paintings were in a particular sequence. And if you're looking at a dispersed panel, you might un not understand how they went together in the context. So here is our painting on the upper right of the Nativity. And when you look at the prophet Isaiah in our painting, he's looking out of the painting, which would seem very strange, unless you knew the painting that was next to him. And the painting that is next to him is the one I'm showing you here, which is another dispersed panel from the Maya style that's today at the National Gallery in London, and that is the Annunciation. Isaiah's prophecy foretells the birth of Jesus, and as a result, his, he looks to the panel that would have been placed next to him, which is the one that's in London today here. So this is the way they would have gone together. Our first room has the Byzantine tradition, then we speak to the sort of proto-Gothic tradition of Duccio and Siena, and then we have Duccio speaking to Giotto, and this is our great Giotto picture in Gallery One, the Madonna and Child from 1310. This is a crest painting. Again, with Giotto, the rules of Italian art change. He really is a kind of portal, you might say, towards the Renaissance. His naturalism, sense of plasticity, all of the things that we think about later in Italian Renaissance painting are already hinted at with Giotto. Again, though, what one doesn't necessarily realize when you look at our painting is that it is part of a dispersed altarpiece. And this is an altarpiece that art historians have debated as to how it might have all gone together. So there are various hypotheses of how this altarpiece might have looked uh, advanced by different uh, scholars. This is a possible reconstruction of, a, of the five-piece dispersed polyptych. 
That includes two paintings that are today in France, St. John the Evangelist on the left and St. Lawrence uh, on the right. That's one theory. Roberto Longhi had another theory. <laughs> and this is a reconstruction that he came up with of a polyptych uh, proposed by Longhi that would have incorporated our uh, Madonna and Child. Uh, if you like that one, you might like this one. Again, different uh, theories here. What's interesting, our Giotto is in pristine condition. And one of the reasons so many crest paintings are in pristine condition is because he took very good care of them. They hung in his house. And here's where the Giotto hung on the far right. So this is the so-called Venetian sitting room that had the Giotto painting on the right. You're looking to the left at the Ant Antonio Rossellino Madonna and Child. And then you're looking at the Fra Filippo Lippi Madonna and Child. These paintings have very interesting provenance stories being bought, being sold, being traded. Uh, this is the kind of thing I can't go into because <laughs> we'll be here all day, but I'm just trying to sort of point out some of the highlights. In gallery number three, we enter still Siena, and we have this wonderful painting that's a crest picture of C by Simone Martini, the Angel of the Annunciation from 1330. The Sienese tradition is different than the Florentine tradition. It is a much more, especially in the hands of Simone Martini, who is a uh, younger um, follower of Duccio. Uh, it's a much more courtly, elegant style, and especially with Simone Martini. He's much more interested in this beautiful, courtly, elegant line, these figures that look almost like they're uh, kings and queens and have a certain kind of luxuriousness, his emphasis on these brocades and, and damasks textiles, which were very important to the economic life of, of Siena. This is a, a small picture. It's about the size of a sheet of notebook paper, maybe a little bit larger. And yet we know that this was also part of a dispersed altarpiece. And I'll show you the painting that goes with it. But first, here is the great Simone Martini that's at the Uffizi in Florence. And you can see this incredibly lovely courtly style, especially this angel, the angel Gabriel, who lands here and announces to the Virgin that she'll bear this child, surrounded here by two, two saints to the left and uh, to the right. This is the hallmark or the epitome of uh, elegance in the work of Simone Martini. Now, I mentioned that this picture is the angel Gabriel, so it's clearly an angel in the Annunciation, but we don't have the angel. Uh, figure of Mary, and but we know where Mary lives. She lives in Russia. And here she is. This is the Madonna of the Annunciation. We have the angel, and the Russians have Mary. Uh, and this is today at the, at, the, at the Hermitage. So if we were to reconstruct this as a diptych, it would have looked like this. Another beautiful, uh, wonderful um, painting that we have, and this is also in Gallery 1, is this triptych. Triptych simply means three-paneled, normally a large central panel with two wings that close over it, as you see here on the right. This is by Nardo di Cione. He's a Florentine. It's the Madonna and Child with Saints Peter and John the Evangelist and the Man of Sorrows on the very top, that little trefoil shape at the very top. 
This is, again, a jewel-like work. It's small. We have it in, installed in the gallery on a little ledge that would have been comparable to the way you would have found it because this would not have been in a church. This would have been in a private home for private devotion. Today, you might throw your iPad in your suitcase. In the past, you would throw this in your suitcase so that when you got to wherever you were going, you could set it up and still have a place of devotion and prayer. Uh, this painting is, again, in really beautiful shape, but it's interesting where Mr. Cress had it. He had it over the bed in the so-called Carpaccio bedroom there. So there you see it over the bed in his apartment with other works by Carpaccio, the Virgin Reading, is in the, uh, towards the left, which is a painting we also have today at the National Gallery. Uh, if you go through other, I'm not gonna go through every painting every time, but other works in this room are today in Miami, in Tucson, and in Birmingham, Alabama. This is not a melon picture. This is not a crest picture. This is a recent acquisition through the great incorporation of the Corcoran collection into our collection. And this is uh, by Andrea Divani, a Sienese painter. It's scenes from the Passion of Christ, the agony in the garden on the left, the crucifixion in the center, and the descent into limbo on the right from the 1380s. So this really is an incredibly important addition to our early Italian pictures. It's by neither, it comes to us neither from uh, Mr. Cress or Mr. Mellon, but of course now we have these incredible number of works that were collected by Mr. Corcoran. So they are housed here today as well. This is a beautiful painting. Here are the panels on the left of the agony in the garden and Christ's descent in the limbo. For this, you'll need to come to the Easter story in art, uh, which is another one of my uh, seasonal talk, shall we say. Um, here's the great Agnolo Gaddi painting that we have as you enter and move from gallery one into gallery two. You see it framed there on the right. This is a three-part altarpiece. That is the original frame except for those spiral columns, which we reconstructed from fragments that were left. So the spirals are uh, modern replacements of the lost originals. This picture is fascinating because of the lineage here. Agnolo Gaddi is a Florentine. His father is Taddeo Gaddi, and Taddeo Gaddi studies with Giotto. So we have a direct line here from Giotto to Taddeo to Agnolo Gaddi in terms of the lineage of these uh, artists. This painting is uh, fascinating in other ways. Um, when you look at the saints, that's Andrew with his cross upon which he was crucified. That's Benedict, who holds then the uh, Benedict, the rules of uh, the Benedictine order, that, that open book. St. Bernard of Clairvaux is a Cistercian, which is an offshoot of the Benedictines. But what's interesting is that both Benedict and Bernard are wearing the robes of a Cistercian, which means this probably was for a Cistercian monastery. So they dress up Benedict in a Cistercian garment, then that's St. Catherine of Alexandria. This is another painting I spend a lot of time on <laughs> at Christmas time, but this is by Giovanni Di Paolo. This is a crest picture from Mr. Cress, uh, the Annunciation and Expulsion from Paradise from 1435. You'll notice this is a single panel, but it has three parts like a triptych. Uh, the part to the far left is the expulsion, in the center is the Annunciation, and on the right is 
poor Joseph over there relegated to the perimeter, to the, to the edge who warms himself by a fire. This painting has a lot of uh, significant iconography in terms of how Gabriel is treated in relationship to Mary, Mary's pose, the colors that she wears. Again, it's a, in beautiful condition. Here's the scene of the expulsion and then of Joseph. And then in the expulsion scene, because they're being expelled from paradise, from Eden, which is all fertile and fecund, you see all these bunnies and things running around and flowers that are blooming. One of my favorite paintings that doesn't get the attention that it sometimes, uh, that it always deserves, is this uh, predella. So again, you can see that this would have been at the bottom of an altarpiece when you have this long array of pictures. You know that something went above this. And this is by Benvenuto di Giovanni, a Sienese painter. There are five scenes that comprise this predella the agony in the garden, Christ carrying the cross, the crucifixion, Christ in limbo, and the resurrection. Now, this is interesting because it's five panels that were part of one predella, but Mr. Cress acquired them at two different times. The initial painting of the agony in the garden he acquired first, separately. And then some years later, the four other paintings were discovered together, and it seemed evident that they were four of five predella panels, which is the way that they today are shown here. So here they are. The first panel was acquired by Mr. Cress by itself, and then some years later he acquired the other four paintings. I'll show you some closer views here. What's interesting is when we go back to that entrance hall and we scrutinize the wall and look at the paintings, there is that first predella panel. That's the agony in the garden, minus its four friends, which hadn't shown up yet. So Mr. Cress purchased the, I should say the Cress Foundation through funds, purchased the agony in the garden in 1938, uh, and then it was gifted to the gallery in 1939. The other four paintings were purchased by Mr. Cress in 1949, and then gifted to the gallery in 1952, so how did this look when it was all together? Like this. Here's the painting that our predella went under, and that painting today is in Siena. So today you go to the museum in Siena, the Pinacoteca in Siena, to see this ascension of Christ on the left. It's a large painting, and this was originally painted for a monastery, Sant'Ungenio, in Siena, but today it's in the museum. And our predella fits with this painting that's today in Siena, and if you were to put them together, this is how it would have gone. This is the reconstruction here. So our predella would have fit below the painting that's today in Siena. Again, when this would have been installed in the church, in the monastery, wherever, the predella would have been more or less at eye level. You would have had to look up at the big part of the painting. Just taking you through quickly the agony in the garden, Christ carrying the cross. Benvenuto di Giovanni is a painter who clearly came out of the miniature tradition of illuminated manuscript. He has an incredibly jewel-like, precise miniature quality to the details, certainly a Gothic tradition to these long, spindly kinds of forms. Here's the crucifixion. All of these date to 1491. Christ in limbo and the resurrection. 
on the right. Now, one of the most interesting rooms in Mr. Kress's apartment was this room. This was the so-called Venetian sitting room again, but this is a color slide of a different wall. And if we just read across uh, from left to right, there's Pesolino's crucifixion with St. Jerome and St. Francis. That's here today. Duccio's calling of the apostles Peter and Andrew, which we've talked about from the Maestà, on a, in a different frame, of course. The two, the angel Gabriel and the uh, Madonna are by Masolino. The painting I just showed you, Giovanni Di Paolo's, uh, where is that, uh, right there, uh, Annunciation, I just showed that to you. Uh, the Madonna and Child in the center is by Domenico Veneziano. And uh, you see a Predella panel as well, St. Francis, which I'll show you in a minute. Uh, there's Filippino Lippi's Tobias and the Angel, Giovanni Bellini's St. Jerome Reading, and all of these paintings are today here uh, at the National Gallery. And to a certain extent, with some liberties, when you enter Gallery 4 in the West Building, Gallery 4 is a loose approximation of this room. A number of the paintings that were in this room are today in Gallery 4. Here's a Masolino on the left that's in um, Gallery 4. This is not a crest picture. This is a melon painting. goes along with those other two Masolinos I just showed you by Mr. Crest, the Annunciation from 1423-24. But again, they kind of, Mr. Melon and Mr. Crest speak to each other here because the Masolino Annunciation is a, a melon picture. But the painting on the right by Fra Carnevale, another Annunciation, is a crest picture. So there are good examples of how two different artists in Florence dealt with the theme of the Annunciation, but most especially how they dealt with the idea of perspective. And of course, the Fra, we give higher marks to the Fra Carnivale, literally because he has a perfect one-point linear perspective that takes you right out that door into the garden in the distance. All the orthogonals recede, things are either at eye, what it's above eye level descends, what's below eye level ascends. Even the architecture here on the right, this arcade, quotes Florentine architecture, specifically Brunelleschi's Ospedale here in, in Florence. So the Fra Carnivale painting is a very progressive painting. He wants to make sure that we know, that he knows all of the leading artists in Florence at this time we have another, we have two other small paintings in this room that you might just walk by because they're very modest, but they're among, again, the most important paintings. And they relate to this great picture on the left. This on the left is the St. Lucy altarpiece. That's today in the Uffizi. It dates to 1445 to 47. It was painted for the main altar of a church in the Via dei Bardi in Florence. It was probably there until the 18th century. And then, much like the Maestà, it got dispersed. The other panels that were part of the Predella were dispersed. So I'm showing you the reconstruction on the right of the painting with what would have been the original Predella panels at the bottom. And today, those Predella panels are in various locations. Two are in the Fitzwilliam Museum in Cambridge. One is in the Gamalda Gallery in Berlin but the other two are here at the National Gallery. So these two pictures of St. Francis receiving the stigmata and John the Baptist removing his cloak into the desert are here now at the gallery. 
and here they are. So these two small panels would have been at one time part of the St. Lucie altarpiece. We're very fortunate to have two of these panels here. There's much to say about the importance of especially the St. John in the Desert, the painting on the lower right by Veneziano. Veneziano, despite his name, he was born in Venice, but he's essentially a Florentine. He comes to Florence early in his life. All of Gallery 4 is Florentine. It's like the who's who of Florentine artists. And they're all interested in one thing, which is problem solving. By the 15th century in Florence, now we're beyond Giotto or Duccio, we're into the 15th century, and all of the Florentine artists are interested in solving problems, perspective, space, compositional motifs, uh, anatomy, uh, all of the things that artists must have to master, modeling in light and shadow. Um, so every painting in that room, an artist is trying to solve a problem. And in the case of the Veneziano, lower right, St. John, what's most evident here is the fact that this is a naked man. It's a nude body. And what Domenico Veneziano is trying to show us is that he knows anatomy. He's actually looked at human bodies, and in fact, he's probably done dissections of cadavers. But it's also a figure that clearly seems to be based on an uh, antique model. The Romans especially love to have these small figures in bronze. We've done shows like this here at the gallery of a Renaissance artist echoing that technique, the great Antico show that we did. So you would hold these little sculptures in your hand. It would be a sign of your sort of education and refinement. You would have a small little nude statue on your desk. And this is probably the kind of thing that Veneziano was, was seeing in Florence at this time that encouraged and was used as a source for this uh, figure. Certainly there were larger sources. This is the great Marathon boy. This is a Greek bronze from 340 BC. It's at the Archaeological Museum in Athens. So it's this kind of sculpture, both by Greek and Romans, but also more specifically the small versions of this kind of sculpture that the Florentines would have known that encouraged this kind of study of anatomy. This is the time of dissections, and I always like to bring this in because this is the anatomical theater at the University of Padua today. This was built in 1594. You can still visit the university and you can visit this theater, which is where they did dissections. You see two different views here, one with the dissection table that doesn't have the flat part on the left, but does have the flat part on the right. And what that flat part on the right was, and there you see the chair where the professor would have been holding forth doing a dissection. The students would have been around the circular areas looking down to follow his lecture. But the because at this time dissections of human cadavers was forbidden by the church, you did this at great risk, and so that you had to be very careful. So when a professor would do a dissection of a human cadaver, he would have his students perched in various lookout places in case somebody was coming to, t to sort of arrest him. But the reason that dissecting table has these panels is because they were hooked up to a pedal, and the dissection table was over a trap door. And if, in fact, somebody was coming, if the student said, the cops are coming, then the professor could hit the pedal 
a trap door would open. He could then let the panels of the table open up and drop the cadaver into the river where it would float away. And then he could close the panels, and he would have next to him probably a cadaver of a cat or a dog that he could throw up on the table. Uh, and then if the authorities said, we have a report that you're dissecting cadavers, he could say, no, 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 I, this is just a cat or a dog. And the evidence was, meanwhile, floating away. Um, when you go to the University of Padua, if you're an academic, as I am, my whole career has been in universities, it's quite moving. And the reason it's moving is because you understand how important knowledge was and curiosity and, and what that meant to people, how they valued learning. So, for example, the alumni, the various individuals who studied at the University of Padua <laughs> included Copernicus, Vesalius, William Harvey, Giuseppe Tartini, Torquato Tasso, Giacomo Casanova, uh, Ugo Foscolo. They're all alumni of this university. The greatest teacher probably on the faculty at Padova was Galileo. Galileo's lectures were so popular, he held the chair of mathematics at Padua between 1592 and 1610. His lectures were so popular that the students would come in and the room would be jammed. And because he would be on the same level, he'd just be standing on the floor. Students in the back couldn't see him or hear him. So the students themselves took it upon themselves to go out and get a bunch of lumber and fashion a, a podium uh, that they would allow him to be raised up above the level of the floor so students in the back could, uh, could hear him. And they just fashioned this out of scraps of lumber that they scavenged. It's this old rickety thing, and it's still there. You, when you go, you see the room where Galileo lectured, and you see this rickety podium that he used to get, uh, that the students built for him. Of course, dissections ultimately in the hands of somebody like Leonardo da Vinci reach this incredible kind of sophistication. These are just some uh, anatomy studies by Leonardo from 1510 that are in the royal collections at Windsor. We come to the Medici. I'm not going to talk about these two sculptures as works of art, but I'm using them to illustrate the great brothers Medici, Lorenzo de Medici on the left and Giuliano de Medici on the right because they're, of course, among the greatest patrons in 15th century uh, Florence. The tradition goes back to their grandfather, uh, Cosimo, to their father, Piero. We have one of the greatest collections of Medici-related pictures, almost all of which came to, uh, come to us from Mr. Cress. So uh, we're particularly rich in works uh, by the Medici. This uh, incredible bust on the left by Andrea del Verrocchio is a Cress a work. And then it's beautiful because the other brother, Giuliano, on the right, that terracotta was given to us by Mr. Mellon. So we have, again, the two great founders sharing their riches uh, in this case. I mentioned Verrocchio, who executed the bust on the left, because the, our first big show of the fall, opening on September 15th, is going to now be a Verrocchio show. It's currently in Florence. It's coming here. These works will actually be, we have now deinstalled these sculptures. They're on their way into a new location in the West Building for the exhibition that will open on September uh, 15th. So you'll want to see that. So one of the greatest Medici pictures we have is the Adoration of the Magi by Fra Angelico and Fra Filippo Lippi. It is a crest picture. 
comes to us from Samuel Cress. This is a painting that has a very, very important, rich provenance. It goes, we can chart this through an inventory all the way back to the time of Lorenzo de' Medici. And in fact, we know from the inventory how much the Medici paid for this picture. They paid 100 florins. It was the most expensive work in their entire collection. When you go to the inventory, uh, you read this passage on the inventory where it says, quote, in the large ground floor bedroom called Lorenzo's bedroom, a large tondo, our lady and our Lord and the Magi who come to bring offerings from the hand of Fra Giovanni. Fra Giovanni refers to Fra Angelico. And then the man who made the inventory writes Florence 100. So he was making a list. And this was after the death of Lorenzo. Giuliano had died prior to Lorenzo. The Medici fortunes took a sort of turn, downward turn. They began to sort of uh, to sell off some of their properties and works. And that's when this inventory was created. Here is the painting hanging in Mr. Cress's apartment on the left. And you'll notice the frame. He had it in a square frame with a circular cut. You'll notice that's not the frame we have it in on the right. This is the frame that we have on the right. So the current Fra Angelico frame, when you see this picture, is a replica frame made to look period. But this frame was created in 1955. And it was carved by a Florentine carver, frame, frame maker. But it's based on a Botticelli frame of the Madonna of the Pomegranate. If you go to the, the Uffizi, there is a painting, the Madonna of the Pomegranate, that has a frame. And that frame was the model for our frame. So when the carver was looking for a 15th century example that he could follow, he chose that Botticelli frame. So you can see that it changed from the way Mr. Cress had it into the way that we see it today. It hung here. This is the Medici Palace in Florence, the Palazzo Medici Riccardi. It is a tondo, circular picture, which is particularly significant and distinctly Florentine. The circle had all kinds of importance for the Renaissance. This is Leonardo's great drawing of Vitruvian Man, in which he puts the human figure circumscribed by a square and a circle. So the geometry and perfection of the circle and of the square, this idea that for the Renaissance, God was the ultimate geometer, God was the ultimate mathematician, and the divine resided in these perfect forms. That relates to the development and birth of the, cent the idea of a tondo, of a picture that is round. Those, that type of picture was not ever found in a church. It was for domestic architecture. So it would be in a palace. But there's a more specific source for a tondo. And it is this kind of object here. You might think this is a tondo picture, the way it's displayed right here. But in fact, it's not. It's a platter, just photographed vertically. This is what is called a, a desco da parto. And this is the one that's at the Met in New York City. Uh, and it's by an artist who was particularly important. His name, his full name, was Giovanni di, di Ser Giovanni Guidi, but we call him affectionately Lo Scheggia, which in Italian might translate as Old Splinter Face. Um, he is the brother of Masaccio, but Lo, uh, Lo Scheggia had some type of muscular 
affliction and one side of his face was different than the other. There was a droop to one side of his face. So his face looked somewhat um, fragmented and he was nicknamed Loskegia. He made his fame, not like his brother painting frescoes, he made his fame painting Desco da Parto. A Desco da Parto is a birthing tray. It is the kind of thing that a wealthy woman, a wealthy family, would uh, present to a woman who was pregnant, who was about to have a child, and it would be used to bring to the woman in her bed whatever she might need, medicines, salves, liquids, drinks. In other words, it was like a serving platter, uh, but it was, it was circular. And if you were the Medici, you would not just go buy one of these off the rack, which in fact you could in Florence. If you were not wealthy, you would go to a cabinet, to a, to a, um, a carpenter who specialized in making these. He would just have a bunch of them pre-made and you would just buy one. It would have no painting, no design. It would be very simple, but that's not good for the Medici. So here the Medici's birthing tray, the childbirth tray, the Desco da Parto that's at the Met, which has survived, is this one that has a scene of the triumph of fame on one side and the coat of arms here on the other side of the Medici family and the Tornabuoni family. So this is the great Desco da Parto at the Met by Loskegia from 1448-49. This was created to celebrate the birth of Lorenzo de' Medici. So what happened here is Piero de' Medici marries into the Tornaboni family. He marries Lucrezia Tornaboni. They have initially daughters. He's getting worried about that because uh, he needs a son. So he commissions this Desco da Parto to be made. Maybe it was a kind of hoping he could sort of increase his luck. And sure enough, Lorenzo is born. And this is the birthing tray that was made for Lorenzo. This was of tremendous personal significance to Lorenzo de' Medici. He kept it his entire life. When we have that inventory that I just read to you about the tondo of Fra Angelico, this man who makes his inventory mentions that this desco da parto is also hanging on the wall in Lorenzo's bedroom. In other words, this desco is there when he's born, it's the last thing he sees when he dies. It's still on his wall. This is what a desco would look like. In other words, once it had performed its function as a serving tray, then you would flip it up and put it on the wall. And then it would look like a tondo. And that is the origin of a, of a circular picture. So here is an engraving on the left, a woodcut, not an engraving, that shows a desco da parto and that shows you after, it's not something you then throw into a closet or something. It's important enough that it actually hangs. We have other examples. Here is the great fresco by Ghirlandaio at Santa Maria Novella in Florence of the birth of John the Baptist. And you notice the woman brings in fruit on a desco da parto. And here's the woman who has a little cloth over it. Because if it had a wonderful painting on it, you don't want to spill things on it. So you might cover it with a kind of a placemat or a little piece of tablecloth. Here you see. So that is the origin of a tondo. And here is our great tondo by Fra Angelico, but also worked on by Fra Filippo Lippi. Again, this has a long history. It's commissioned by Cosimo de' Medici from Fra Angelico. 
Franz Jalco is a very busy, popular artist. Uh, he lays out this picture more or less, but he paints really only the Madonna and Child, gives it over later, 20 years later. So the first commission is 1440, but in 1460, he gives it over to Fra Filippo Lippi, another monk. They're both Fra means brother, but they are very different in terms of their comportment, shall we say. And Fra Filippo Lippi paints the rest of this picture, except for the Virgin. Here's the difference between the Virgin Mary painted by Fra Angelico and Joseph painted by Fra Filippo Lippi. Many, many iconographic details here. The uh, crumbling wall, the parapet, the young semi-nude boys, the peacock, the hawk, the pheasant, etc., all of which have great significance that I've spoken about, and I'm sure you know, those of you who come to the gallery, the peacock is a symbol of everlasting life. It was believed in antiquity that the peacock's flesh never decayed even after death. In Christianity, it just takes that over as the idea of everlasting life in Christ. The hawk and the pheasant are distinct Medici symbols. The parapet crumbling is the sort of, because that's Roman architecture. With the birth of Christ, we have the passage from the pagan world to the Christian era. Those young boys, art historians have waxed a lot of ink on who they represent, what they represent. They may very well be the neophytes who are now accepting Christianity. Some of them are on one side of the wall, some are on the other side of the wall, and that could be significant. My, uh, I always give credit to my wonderful colleague and friend that I miss because he's retired, <laughs> uh, Russell Sale, who was here for a number of years. Russell did very extensive research on this picture and specifically on the iconography of the birds. And he came to the conclusion that, in fact, it wasn't the painting just painted by Fra Angelico and Fra Filippo Lippi, but in fact, it was also painted by Benozzo Gozzoli. This is our painting on the right that we have at the gallery, the Feast of Herod and the Beheading of John the Baptist by Gozzoli. Russell pretty conclusively proved that those um, birds, which look very strange, they look like they're cut and pasted, were indeed added later by Benozzo Gozzoli. And he wrote about this in this article that appeared in Burlington Magazine in 2007. He even got the cover of Burlington, which is kind of a big deal. Art historians, we don't have a lot to hang our hats on, but, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but that's, uh, that was pretty, pretty nifty. Um, so if you want to read all about this picture, here's the article. Burlington Magazine, January 2007. The title of the article was Birds of a Feather, the Medici Adoration Tondo in Washington. The adoration of the Magi continues to be a Medici subject, and in another, this is interesting because this is a melon picture here by Botticelli, the adoration of the Magi. The Medici had a particular affinity for the Magi because they identified with the Magi and they saw themselves as the Magi of Florence. They brought Florence wealth and gifts and prestige and status. They founded a confraternity of the Magi. The Feast of the Magi is the Epiphany on January 6th. We know that Lorenzo de' Medici was born on January 1st. We know that. But to further cement the link between the Medici and the Magi, he changed his birthday to January 6th. He, he, he just said, no, I was really born on the 6th. So the reason why we have so many Magi pictures that are Medici-related, so the one on the right was commissioned by Cosimo de' Medici, but the one on the left would have been a whole different generation of uh, Medici, the young Lorenzo and Giuliano, 
and they're still commissioning Magi pictures. So here we have Mr. Kress and Mr. Mellon again. The Botticelli is a Mellon picture, the Adoration of the Magi on the left, and the Fra Angelico Fra Filippo Lippi is a Kress picture on the right. We also have, I mentioned to you, we have among the greatest, we have an incredibly important collection of Medici-related objects. So here's the Botticelli portrait of Giuliano de' Medici on the left, in the same room where Mr. Cress hung the adoration, he hung this portrait here. Uh, so there you see it. This picture relates the Botticelli to the Pazzi conspiracy, this attempt by the Pazzi family to drive the Medici out and to assassinate both Lorenzo and Giuliano. They missed Lorenzo, but they got Giuliano. They stabbed him 19 times. And he died in the, they decided to do this, by the way, on Easter Sunday in church when they knew both of the brothers would be there together. If you're going to kill them, you have to kill them at the same time in the same place. Lorenzo escaped into the sacristy, but Giuliano died on the altar or on in the, yeah, basically on the altar. And that leads to another important Crest's work, which are these medallions. This is by Bertolo di Giovanni, a Florentine sculptor with the assassination of Giuliano, the survival of Lorenzo, a whole host of artists created works that celebrated the survival of Lorenzo but commemorated the death of Giuliano. And this, these, are, these two medallions are particularly significant. The one on the left shows Lorenzo de' Medici, and the one on the right shows Giuliano. These are sometimes called the, the Pazzi conspiracy medals. They're both Cress collection works, both from Mr. Cress. This one that shows um, Giuliano shows him being assassinated. Another very important work, I mention it, it is not a Mellon work, it is not a Cress work. We're introduced to a different collector here who was discussed, especially by Eric Denker in the Dutch collection. Uh, earlier, and that's the, this is part of the Widener collection. It's the Andrea del Castaño shield on the left, a David with the head of Goliath from 1450-55. This shield is very significant because it's so rare. This was a shield, a Florentine shield. It was not meant to be used in war, but it was a, it was meant to be used in, in parades. It was essentially a decorative parade shield. What's unusual is that usually these shields would have had just a, an escutcheon or a coat of arms, but this has a subject, an actual scene of David slaying Goliath, which is unusual. It, within that, Andrea del Castaño treats so many important 15th century Florentine ideas about painting. The pose itself is significant because it probably echoes this sculpture on the right, which is a Roman sculpture. This is a Roman marble copy after a Greek original. The Dioscuri. The Dioscuri were the sculptures of the horse tamers, these figures that looked like they were reining in a horse. The reins are missing here. So this is a way you see a Renaissance artist translating a classical source. And educated Florentines would know this. They would know that that pose is based on a Roman prototype. And that would show their sophistication and also Andrea del Castaño's sophistication. So everybody would feel smart. You notice he wears the short tunic and he rolls up his sleeves. That's not accidental. 
because Andrea del Castaño would have also dissected cadavers and would have learned much about anatomy. So why should I cover up what I know? I'm going to show you the legs, and I'm going to show you calf muscles and the quads and everything else. Same with the arms. So that's, that's again, with a purpose. Uh, he shows wind blowing the tunic. He shows clouds scudding by. He shows rocks and vegetation. In other words, we have a landscape here. So we have wind, clouds, rocks, vegetation, anatomy, classical sources. It has dramatic narrative. It's telling a story. But then it also even had political symbolism because for the Florentines, David was a particularly important subject. So the reason we have so many Davids in Florentine art, Verrocchio does David, Michelangelo does a David, Andrea del Castaño, Donatello, everybody does Davids, is because the Florentines saw themselves as a David. We are an underdog. We're a small republic constantly challenged by bigger, more powerful neighbors, the Papal States, the Duchy of Milan, we're always threatened. But if you come against us, we may look small, but you're going to go down. Uh, and so David was a subject that they favored. The theme of the Dioscuri was well known. It was translated into Prince. This is after Marc Antonio Raimondi. So artists knew those sculptures, either from those Roman copies or from actual engravings. When you come back to the Botticelli that we talked about and you notice to the right, there is a figure reigning in a horse. In other words, Botticelli in this picture is showing us that he knows that sculpture too. See it there? So this is the way artists embedded and sort of impressed us with their classical knowledge. So here is the same reaching up to rein in the horse that comes from this. Here's Fra Filippo Lippi, Madonna and Child. This is a crest picture on the left, 1440. And I'm showing you an Andrew Mellon, Botticelli on the right from 1470. There's lineage here. Fra Filippo Lippi is a, is a monk. He's a Carmelite. Remember, Fra Angelico was a Dominican. They're very different. Fra Angelico was very devout, very... I mean, he's, he was beatified by Pope John Paul II. He's on his way to becoming a saint. Fra Filippo Lippi was anything but a saint. And at time, he worked for Cosimo de' Medici, who at one time put him, locked him up under what he called protective custody um, in, his, in the palazzo that I just showed you, the Medici Palazzo, uh, because he was notorious for running out and having escapades. He was arrested for embezzlement. We know he was even tortured on the rack during his uh, hearing. He had an affair with a Carmelite nun, Lucrezia Butti. Uh, they had a child, and of course their child is one of the great Renaissance painters, uh, Filippino Lippi, the little Philip. So uh, very different, but Botticelli figures in here because Fra Filippo Lippi, when he has Filippino, and Filippino is going to be clearly as talented and is going to be an artist, Fra Filippo Lippi is wise enough to know that he's not going to study. I don't want him to study with me. That's not good father-son. You know, it's like teaching your son to drive or something. So he looks around for who should I have my son study with, and he chooses the stu his greatest student, Botticelli. So the lineage is Fra Filippo Lippi, whose best student is Botticelli, who then becomes the teacher of Filippino Lippi. So that's the way this lineage unfolds. 
Here is the Cress apartment again with an interesting painting. There is the Fra Filippo Lippi on the far right. The painting on the far left is interesting. You see it there in the uh, Cress apartment. It's by Neroccio de Landi. And it was initially a, well, Mr. Cress purchased this picture and you see it right there. But on the left, you see it today in that color photograph. And it's not in the National Gallery anymore. This painting was acquired by Mr. Cress. It was gifted to the National Gallery. And then we did an exchange with the Met. Uh, we swapped paintings. And so this painting then went to the Met in 1960. So it was a Crest picture originally here at the gallery, but then now it's today at the Met. Here's Botticelli's portrait of a youth on the left, and here is Filippino Lippi. So this is the teacher, Botticelli, and the student, Filippino. This hangs in the room of our humanistic portraits which houses, of course, the great Ginevra that I'll mention in a second. This is Filippino Lippi's Pietà. These are, um, this is a crest picture. Now, today, if you go into the galleries, this whole room is, this whole situation has changed because we're preparing for the Verrocchio show, and this picture of the Ginevra da Benci will be in the Verrocchio show. So we have taken it down, and why, when we have exhibitions that require us to move or take things down, that's the time we send things to a lab to analyze it, look at it. But we might also do other things, and we've decided to reframe this picture. So when you come back in September to see the exhibition, Ginevra will have a new frame. This is the frame that we currently have on Ginevra da Benci. Here it is here. This is a 16th century frame. It's most likely Venetian. It's what we call a caseta, a little box frame. Um, so it looks like a box because this painting is painted on both the front and back, but it'll change now. A number of works that are in our permanent collection will be moved now to be included in the Verrocchio show. And this will be one of them. So this is the great Leonardo Ginevra da Benci, 1474. Um, now, this picture is neither a, a crest picture, nor is it technically a Mellon picture, but this was bought with funds from Andrew Mellon's daughter, Elsa. She created a fund for purchasing works of art. So we purchased the Ginevra with money from the Elsa Mellon Bruce Fund. So it relates to the, to the Mellons that way. This painting has, uh, again, an interesting history. 2017 marked the 50th anniversary of the acquisition of the Ginevra da Benci. It had a very interesting and very kind of secretive, spy-like way that we finally acquired the painting. It was put on public display in Washington for the first time on March 17, 1967, which was the 26th anniversary of the opening of the National Gallery. It's an early Leonardo when he was 21 years old. Uh, it's a portrait of a young Florentine a woman, Ginevra. It might be related to her wedding to Luigi Nicolini in 1474. It's also painted on the back. The front is oil, but the back is tempera. And on the back, we have this wreath of laurel and palm and juniper with a scroll that's inscribed in Latin, beauty adorns virtue. But when we x-rayed this picture, there are a lot of other things going on here. 
this, there's another inscription that was underneath the one that we can read, and that's an inscription or, of the motto of the uh, humanist Bernardo Bembo, who was the Venetian ambassador to Florence, who we know greatly admired Ginevra in a platonic way. They exchanged poems, etc. And Bembo's motto can be seen in X-ray, which was virtue and honor. So it's likely that perhaps Bembo, who ordered the um, had something to do perhaps with the creation of this picture, which leads us to then wonder if in fact it was painted as a wedding portrait or if it was a portrait that relates to Bembo's admiration for Ginevra. This will all be further discussed if you come to the Verrocchio show because um, when we looked at the Ginevra, we realized, of course, that this painting at some point in its, in some point in its history was cut down Today it's a square, but we know that originally it was not a square, it was a rectangle. And at some point, uh, this painting lost a good four or five inches from the bottom. And to try to recreate what the painting might have looked like required research that related especially to Leonardo's teacher. Leonardo's teacher was Verrocchio. So what might have Ginevra looked like before it was cut? We haven't found that piece that's been discarded. Maybe it'll turn up on the Antiques Roadshow. So in order to try to come to some, this requires a little detective work, there is this sculpture by Verrocchio that's at the Bargello, Lady with Primroses from 1475. Right now it's not at the Bargello, it's here at the National Gallery, because this will be in the Verrocchio show. So this, at, some, at one point, people thought this was a portrait of Ginevra. It's by Verrocchio. It's certainly a sculpture Leonardo knew and so perhaps this is what our Ginevra looked like when it was intact with the hands holding this little flower. You approach the problem from another end. Well, let's look at not just the Verrocchio side, let's look at the Leonardo side. And you find this drawing in Leonardo's uh, sketchbooks, Study of Hands from 1474. That's in the Royal Library at Windsor today. The question is, could this have been what was underneath Ginevra? Can you play with this? drawing, like uh, then you create a computer program, you might squash it a bit and move it around to see if it could have fit underneath what we have of Ginevra. And when all of that was done, this is what we think the painting looked like. So this painting lost the bottom, but also that little strip on the right was also lost. It was cut there. So the, we think that this might have been what Ginevra looked like when she was intact. While we were doing all that, where that little yellow circle is, we found Leonardo's fingerprint, which then leads you to wonder, okay, <laughs> probably because of that area where you're, you're receding back into that blue atmospheric perspective, that's where you have a lot of subtlety of atmosphere. And clearly Leonardo probably felt that the brush, even a sable haired, a red sable brush, which is very soft, would be too harsh so he probably just would move the paint with his fingers. And by doing so doing, he would impress his fingerprint onto the paint, which then led art historians to look at all of Leonardo's paintings for fingerprints. <laughs> and the art historian who made a living, at least part of his career, doing that was Martin Kemp. And indeed, he has found fingerprints in almost all of Leonardo's paintings. We come to the last room, Gallery 20, which is the Raphael Perugino room. 
Perugino was Raphael's teacher, so this is the great crucifixion. This is a melon, not a crest, but a melon picture. Crucifixion with the Virgin, St. John, St. Jerome, and St. Mary Magdalene from 1482. This was done for a chapel for a Dominican church in San Gimignano, which is not far from uh, Siena. Here are the images of St. Jerome and St. Mary Magdalene. So this is a great uh, melon picture. Not far from that room is this great painting by Piero di Cosimo, which is a crest picture. The visitation with St. Nicholas and St. Anthony Abbott. This is in gallery 19 from 1489. This is a painting I spend a lot of time on the Christmas story because that's St. Nick in the lower left. Ultimately, that's Santa Claus, but he has a kind of a checkered history. Lots going on in this picture. In the background, you see this portrayal of a fresco on a building of the Annunciation. You see the uh, nativity scene here on the left, uh, detailed above St. Nicholas's head. Then the shepherds are coming. You got This is packed with all of the Christmas themes here. Uh, so the adoration of the child, then the adoration of the shepherds, and then winding down that road on the right are the magi are coming. The whole reason Mary and Joseph have to flee into Egypt is because uh, Herod is threatening to kill all the firstborn, and that's the massacre of the innocents, which is here. So Piero gave us the whole story here. This is a great portrayal of St. Anthony Abbott along with St. Nicholas, this great portrayal of the saint, especially I love those spectacles. So these two great saints, St. Saint, uh, Anthony Abbott, who is essentially the founder of uh, monasticism against St. Nicholas, who was the Bishop of Myra in Turkey in the fourth century, who was known for his kindness and charity, especially to children. He gave gifts to children and that sets in motion this whole sort of lineage. He's opening and looking at the Book of Wisdom. His symbol becomes these three golden balls that you see on the floor to the right, which are stand-ins for one of his miracles. When he finds out about this very poor family, these three girls who uh, they've lost their mother, their father is poor, he has no money for a dowry, if without a dowry, they'll probably have a life of prostitution and servitude. So St. Nicholas hears about this. So one night he comes, when they take off their stockings and their shoes, they put them by their bed, he goes, they go to sleep, he comes to the window, and he throws these three balls through the window. One go, each one goes into a stocking. The kids wake up in the morning, they've got these golden balls in their stockings, that's their dowry. And the word spreads that St. Nicholas is this great kind of gift giver for kids, for children, and we're off and running. He's reading from the Book of Wisdom here. This painting was cleaned when we did our big Piero show a few years ago, so it's in magnificent condition. The visitation is when Mary visits Elizabeth, so they're both pregnant, Mary with Jesus and Elizabeth with John the Baptist. So you see this little sprig of wallflower on the ground in the foreground. And wallflower had a significance that signified divine love, but more specifically, since antiquity, uh, wallflowers was used to create an herbal medicine or remedy to lessen the pain of women in childbirth. So it refers to the pregnancy of these two women. This is the other great tondo, Piero di Cosimo's tondo, the nativity 
This is a crest picture and a detail of the angel. In Gallery 20 with the Raphaels and the Peruginos is this Bacchiacca painting, The Flagellation of Christ. And here it is in his apartment again. This is a wonderful painting about perspective and anatomy once again. In essence, those two flagellators who are whipping Jesus are a verso recto. You see the guy on the left, then you flip him over, he's on the right. It's the same pose. And what Bacchiacca is saying is, I can do this guy from the front, but I can also do it from the back. So he just flips him over. The great Raphael, St. George and the Dragon. This is a Mellon painting from Andrew Mellon. And I'm showing it compared to the Netherlandish St. George by Roger van der Weyden, which comes to us from Elsa Mellon's uh, fund again, because this is where Raphael was certainly closely looking at Netherlandish painting because of the detail. He, in fact, even knew specifically this picture by Hans Memling, which was in Urbino during Raphael's lifetime. It was brought there by Pietro Bembo. So the vegetation and trees in the Raphael probably are directly related to the Hans Memling picture that he knew in, when it was in Urbino. The great Madonnas by Raphael, the small copper Madonna on the left, the Nicolini copper Madonna on the right, here, in essence, the difference between these two, one is 1505 and one is only three years later, 1508, is the difference between Raphael still thinking about his teacher, Perugino, on the left, the kind of delicacy and turning of the figures, but now on the right, he's starting to think about Michelangelo. And, of course, Raphael comes from Urbino to Florence, but then by 1508, he is in Rome. And that leads us to the great Alba Madonna. This was one of the great melon pictures he acquired from the Hermitage when the Russians sold off a huge part of their collection. So this is Raphael's album Madonna from 1510. Remember, uh, Raphael's born in Urbino, and then he moves to Florence in 1504, but then he comes in 1508. He's called to Rome by the Pope, Pope Julius II. This is when Michelangelo is at work on the Sistine Chapel ceiling, Raphael is set to work by the Pope for the stanzas, the Pope's private apartments, but he gets a peek at the Sistine Chapel. It's a long story. Vasari tells us this story because Michelangelo really locked up the door, wouldn't let anybody in, but Bramante had the keys because he was the foreman, so everybody sneaks in once when Michelangelo's not there, and Raphael sees the ceiling about, at that point, it was probably about half finished, and he, he can't believe what he sees on that ceiling. He can't believe the turning and the twisting, the torque, the muscularity of those figures. And what the Alba Madonna is, is Raphael's ability to synthesize the two great painters he most admired, Leonardo da Vinci on the left. This is the Virgin and Child with St. Anne by Leonardo, who creates this kind of pyramidal composition for stacking figures in a very beautifully harmonious and stable way with this, with Michelangelo. So these are the, this is the Sibyl, the Erythraean Sibyl on the left on the, and the prophet Isaiah on the right from the Sistine Chapel. The torque, the musculature, the turn of these figures. What Raphael is the smartest kid in the class. 
He's always raising his hand. He always knows the answer. And his ability to just synthesize. He can look at Leonardo and he can look at Michelangelo and he can just synthesize both ideas. And that's what he does in the album Madonna. This is, these are some drawings for the Alba Madonna, the Virgin and Child on the left with St. John the Baptist. What's interesting is the sketch on the right is a man. It's a seated male figure. All he's working on here is the pose. Uh, how am I gonna have the Madonna posed? So he's just using a male model here. There's also significance here to the plants as we were just talking about with Piero di Cosimo. You see on the left, this is ladies' bed straw. It's a type of plant. It's a yellow wildflower. Again, this was believed to have medicinal properties to ease the pain of childbirth. It was also said or believed to have been found near the manger where Christ was placed when he was born. At the top right is cyclamen, which alludes to the virgin's love and sorrow, and at the bottom is our violets for her humility. Upper left, dandelions recall the bitterness of the passion, and so do anemones, which are cradled in the arms of John the Baptist, that detail on the left. Now, here is the frame. We have two great tondos, uh, well, three if we count Piero, but especially two great ones. The Fra Angelico has a frame that was put on in 1955. The Alba Madonna frame is from 1977. So this was built by that frame maker I alluded to, the great Florentine frame maker whose name is Fabio Bucciarelli. He produces these incredible replica frames. This is based on a frame that uh, is surrounding a painting by Luca Signorelli in the Uffizi. It's the Holy Family in the Uffizi. The great Bindo Altoviti by Raphael. This is again a very important crest picture. This was believed all the way through the 19th century to be a self-portrait of Raphael, but we know it's not. Uh, it had a huge impact on 19th century romantic painters, on Ang and others in France especially, but we've come to learn that it is a portrait of the Florentine banker, Bindo Altoviti. Bindo and had just gotten married to his, um, his uh, great love, Fiametta, who was uh, also the daughter of a prominent banking family. Bindo was sent to Rome on business. He was basically stationed in Rome. And we think what's going on here is that um, Bindo wanted his, his young wife to have a portrait of him to remind her of his love for her. And that's what is going on. Bindo Altoviti was a close friend of Raphael. So this painting was given to Bindo's wife, Fiametta Soderini, so that whenever she thought about strain, she could look at her husband lovingly looking at her. He has his ring on his finger, his heart is over, his hand is over his heart. He has this very seductive come hither look, um, which in essence was the idea that everybody thought Raphael looked like, which is totally not true. <laughs> but the, this painting had such an incredible history in affecting our ideas about who Raphael was and what he might have looked like and all of that, even though it wasn't Raphael. It is uh, Bindo Altoviti. So the album Madonna is 1510. Raphael dies in 1520. With Raphael's death, we move out of the High Renaissance into a period that we refer to as mannerism. 
And we can be introduced into mannerism with another great crest picture, which is this one on the right, the Bronzino Holy Family. Everything about the Raphael that is harmonious and logical and beautifully articulated and the, and the space and the perspective is now given a kind of strange exaggeration, elongation, con convolution. Mannerism totally turns its back on all the high principles of the Renaissance. In other words, if Raphael was perfect, and everybody said he was, what the heck am I supposed to do if I'm following perfection? So mannerism is very different. It was a different time. The Reformation in 1517, outbreaks of the plague, the sack of Rome in 1527, mannerists are living in a different world, and that even is represented here by a crest picture. And to end uh, with this portrait of Cress, and I want to return just to the thoughts of Cress as expressed during his dedication remarks, and, and my final remarks are just will be his remarks at his dedication when he says, quote, I love my paintings, having lived surrounded by them for many years. Now the walls of my home are bare of Italian paintings, and I shall miss them. But I am happy in the thought that during my lifetime, my collection intact is settled in my country, in a permanent home within this magnificent modern structure. It is my hope that this contribution will grow in appreciation with the passing years to be enjoyed by all future generations. I turn over my collection for the benefit and enjoyment of all the people to be preserved as part of that spiritual heritage, which is our greatest and most treasured possession. Thank you. This has been a National Gallery of Art podcast.